It's Resurrection Day. This is one of the most celebrated Christian holidays of all time, and rightfully so. The scriptures teach us that uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, God sent his promised Savior into our fallen and sinful world, and that the Savior was born in the little town of Bethlehem, that he grew up and began his ministry in his early 30s, that he, in his ministry, he called for sinners to repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God was at hand. He also healed the sick and the lame and cast out demons. He was also rejected by his own people, as we learned on Friday or on Good Friday. He was handed over to the Romans. He was judged, he was beaten, he was crucified and laid in a rich man's tomb and that he rose from the grave three days later victorious over death, hell, sin and Satan. Today is that day where millions, maybe even billions of Christians around the world remember and celebrate the resurrection and empty tomb of our Savior, the only Savior to this world, Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Now, throughout history, people have responded to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in different ways, some bad, some good. What I would like to do this morning is show you from the scriptures how a handful of different individuals responded to Jesus when he personally appeared to them after his resurrection or when they first heard of his resurrection through others. I believe that every person in this room this morning will be able to relate to one or more of these individuals or groups that I'm going to present to you via scripture. The title of this message is Five Responses to the Resurrected Christ. And I'd like to pray one more time before we get to work. Amen? Father, we have spent... The last hour or so, worshiping you, praising you, singing songs to you, praying to you. Lord, I pray that we would now worship you through your word. God, send your Holy Spirit with power this morning, with resurrection power, to bring dead souls to life. Because in a group of this size, there are going to be people here do not know you in a saving way. Lord, we pray also with resurrection power that you would sanctify your saints. That would mean to transform them, to conform them to the image of Christ, to make them like Jesus. It's a daily process. And Lord, we have come to you and humble ourselves, and we pray that you would save some here and that you would sanctify others. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord in power, and speak to us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Are you ready for the first response? Yes. Five of them. The first one is the spurious response, the chief priests. We look over at Matthew 28, 11 to 15. Matthew 28, 11 to 15. You can turn over there. We're going to be looking at various scriptures. Matthew 28, 11 to 15, the text says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests 
all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away, speaking of Jesus, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Right after, the guard or guards discovered that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. They sent some of their own guards, other guards, to the chief priests, the religious leaders in Jerusalem to report the news that Jesus' body was gone. The chief priests gathered with the elders of the Sanhedrin and concocted a story making it look like the body of Jesus had been stolen by his disciples. That was the explanation for why Jesus was no longer in the tomb. This was a spurious response. Spurious basically means to reject, but it can go beyond that. It can also mean to not only reject, but to also revise or retell. The chief priests did this. They not only rejected the resurrected Christ when they learned of it, but they attempted to recreate the event, to rewrite history, if you will. They made up a story. The body of Jesus had been stolen. And then they paid the guards to spread the rumor, to spread the story. The fact of the matter is, is people have been rejecting the resurrection of Jesus Christ and attempting to revise that particular special historical event since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of the swoon theory? I'm going to give you just a couple of the most outrageous revisions. The swoon theory says that Christ never died on the cross, that he appeared to be dead, he went into a semi-coma and due to shock and loss of blood, he stayed in this semi-coma with such a low rate of heartbeat and so forth that he appeared visibly dead. Since they assumed that he was dead, they removed him from the cross and put him in a tomb. But due to the reviving effect of the spices, the coolness of the tomb, along with the coolness of the tomb, he came to his senses, he came to consciousness. And when he walked out and met the disciples, they assumed that he had rose from the dead and yada, yada, yada. This is one of the early retellings of it. He wasn't dead on the cross. He was knocked out. And then when the spices were applied and the coolness of the tomb and, and you know, and all these things came together, he woke up and walked out. The hallucination theory I think this one was developed by the hippies in the 60s. I'm not sure where it came from. Hey, man, far out. The hallucination theory says that Jesus did not rise, but people hallucinated. Yeah, we have a modern-day term for that. It's called LSD, okay? He, he didn't actually rise, but people hallucinated. They wanted him so badly to be resurrected that they had hallucinations that he was alive. Oh, I have, like, just wanted so badly to be a millionaire, and I've just never gotten rich. You know, if you just think it hard enough, and, the, you know, you'll have hallucinations showing that that's your new reality. 
I really don't pray about being a millionaire. That's a lost cause at this point. But the hallucination theory, isn't that strange? Doesn't that sound like a 60s thing? The telepathy theory. <laughs> the telepathy theory says that there was no physical resurrection, but God sent back a mental image to the disciples so they would think that Jesus rose in the flesh. <laughs> He's there. You know, kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi in front of R2-D2. You're our only hope. You remember the movie? Remember that? Love those movies. The telepathy theory. And there, there are dozens and dozens of these things that have been developed throughout the centuries. Now, why do people, and those are just some of the more goofy ones, why do people reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then attempt to revise the event? Why do they try to rewrite history? Not only do they reject, but why do they try to rewrite it, recreate it? You know, the telepathy theory, the hallucination theory, the swoon theory, this theory, that theory. Why do they do this? Well, the answer is rationalism. Rationalism is just a philosophical term for making your mind and your reason the absolute judge of all truth. The German rationalists, for example, a few centuries back, approached the Bible and they said, well, we've got to get rid of all the miracles out of the Bible because they just don't accommodate our logic. And they decided that the mind was ultimate. And if you could reason it, if you couldn't reason it, then it wasn't true. So they said, we've got to get rid of all the miracles. They took their theological Kirby, their theological Dyson vacuum cleaner, and sucked all the miracles out of the Bible. One of these so-called German theologians actually reduced the entire Bible down to 27 verses. Why did he do that? Because all the other verses have something to do with supernatural things. 27 verses were all, only according to him, the true verses of all scripture. Boy, God sure wasted a lot of words, didn't he? Rationalism allows for no supernatural involvement. But everything must be reasonable. It must be within the framework of the logical process of the human mind. That's rationalism. If it's beyond your capable understanding or comprehension, then it can't possibly be true. That's rationalism. The Sadducees were religious leaders during Jesus' day, and they were rationalists. They rejected all things supernatural, especially the resurrection. The chief priests now may or may not have erred on the side of rationalism. I don't think they did, because they were probably Pharisees, and they did believe in resurrection. I believe they rejected the resurrection and revised the event out of pure hatred of Jesus Christ. These men loved their wicked, self-glorifying and self-gratifying religion. They were jealous or envious of Jesus and they despised him. They put Jesus to death and were de absolutely determined to keep him dead. So why not concoct a story and explain these things away? We know according to scripture and some historical research that that didn't happen. According to the scriptures, which are also a historical record, many witnesses saw Jesus after the resurrection, like his disciples and hundreds of others. The Gospel of John says that he appeared to over 500 people. 
Even early non-Christian historians like Josephus and Suetonius and Pliny the Younger referenced the resurrection of Jesus Christ in their writings. It's not the Bible alone that talks about the resurrection of Jesus. Even pagan, non-believing historians have documented things about it. Now people can deny or spin this is a no-spin zone, by the way. They can deny or spin the resurrection all they want, but that doesn't change the truth. People can deny the resurrection or try to rewrite history, but history remains. They can say that ancient Rome never existed, but it did. There's ruins that prove it. They can deny the Holocaust, that it never happened, but it did. You can respond spuriously to the resurrected Christ... But make no mistake, friend, this will cost you in the end. Where do you suppose the chief priests of this passage are at this very moment? Hidden away in their little luxurious heaven of rationalism? Where do all the rejectors, where do all revisionists Go. They are sent to the place which has been created for the devil and his angels. Place of eternal fire. This is a sobering fact. It's one of those hard and difficult truths of scripture. That those who reject Jesus Christ, the resurrected and risen Lord and Savior, and those who take it even further... And spuriously reorchestrate history, not only deny but revise, end up being judged by that risen Savior. Secondly, we have the spacey response. The spacey response. The Emmaus road travelers. We look over at Luke 24. And I'll read through 13 through 27. Luke 24, 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all things that had happened, speaking of the resurrection and the cross and the death of Jesus and these things. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. We're talking about the resurrected Lord here. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? (laughs) Are you the most clueless guy in the whole area here? And he said to them, what things? Acting clueless. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one uh, to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us 
They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Little exclamation point there. Was it not necessary, this is what Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The two men mentioned in this passage were disciples of Jesus. They weren't part of the group of 12, but they were disciples. They were part of the larger group that followed Jesus. They had just left where the remaining 11 disciples and some women were gathered talking about Jesus and the resurrection the empty tomb. But these guys were skeptical and, and left discouraged. They, they thought that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, but when he was killed, they lost hope. They didn't understand the gospel. They could not comprehend the fact that he had to die and be buried and, and rise. While walking to Emmaus, Jesus came to them in resurrected form. He walked with them, and he talked with them, and he turned with them. And, but they responded to him as he walked with them in a spacey and clueless way. They failed to recognize him. The text says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, was it God that prevented them from recognizing Jesus, or did they prevent themselves in a sense? It's a good question. Think of their background. Years of tradition and religion may have prevented them from seeing Jesus. They obviously had this conqueror-only view of Jesus, and when he was killed, they thought, well, there goes all hope. They didn't think of Jesus as a conqueror over sin and death and hell, just as a conqueror over the Romans. Sorrow and despair may have prevented them from recognizing Jesus in a sense. Certainly God could have prevented them for whatever purpose. Whatever the case may be, they were spacey and unable to recognize Jesus at first. Now, tragically, many Christians today are spacey and unable to recognize what Christ has done for them and called them to. At the cross, our flesh was crucified with Christ, speaking of Christians, and through the resurrection, the Holy Spirit provides us with supernatural power to obey God and to live for him. Those who are, are in Christ have been literally raised with Christ, is what Scripture teaches. This is what baptism symbolizes. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been raised to new life. And we have the power to live this new life. The new life is a life that is marked by the fruits of the Spirit. It is a life of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The new life is a life marked by a genuine love of and for God and a genuine love of and for the truth, for the Bible, and, and a love uh, to obey God and to worship God and, and a life of humility and a life of sacrifice and generosity and service and boldness and holiness. Now, I've, went, I've, I've literally met way too many Christians who appear to be spacey about these things. They live powerless lives, 
Sin and the devil dominate them. They live as shackled and bound. They are lazy and complacent. They are apathetic spiritually. They live as victims, not victors. Am I describing your life? Am I describing you? I have a question for you if you feel like you fit into this category. You have this life of perpetual struggle, can't seem to get out from under. Question is, are you tired of living in sin? Are you tired of living in defeat? Are you tired of living, literally, are you tired of your apathy? And I think that every Christian experiences struggle and seasons of more difficulty and apathy and exhaustion and defeat. I get it. And don't you get tired of living that way? The scary thing is that some Christians never get tired of living that way. That's just their lot in life and they accept it and they think that it gets no better than that. But we all need to know and believe the scriptures and what the scriptures teach. We need to all be of one accord with the Apostle Paul who wrote, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him. Christ, that is, from the dead, Philippians 3.10. Christian, you must understand this power that Paul speaks about that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is yours. Believe there is resurrection power for you. Pray that resurrection power would be released in your life. Receive resurrection power by faith and begin to live in it. Live as a victor over sin and over the devil, not as a victim. Live without fear. Live a life that is worthy of your great high calling. Don't be spacey. Don't live as a space cadet. You just can't get more anti-Christian than that. We need to know the truth and know what has been secured for us in Christ Jesus through his resurrection, which is unspeakable power. And we need to not only know this, we need to start believing it. And if you have trouble believing this, Fall to your knees and pray and say, Lord, help me with my unbelief. It's time for us, the church, to be mature and to take responsibility over our faith in the cause of Christ. The world is crumbling around us and some of us, God's people, are crumbling with it. Like as if we have no knowledge of what's been done for us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We should be standing shoulder to shoulder, ready for battle in the power of the resurrection. If your life is characterized by perpetual whining, perpetual complaining, perpetual defeat, perpetual inactivity, you are not living in resurrection power. That's it. If that's your life, constantly whining about your situation, constantly whining about your lack of energy, constantly whining about your finances, constantly whining about your relationships, constantly whining about your sin and defeat, you, you don't get it. 
If all you do is live a life of complaining, perpetual complaining, well, this is bad, and the government's falling apart and all this. We've got a risen Lord, people. We've got a king of kings. Amen? And he's coming back. If you live that life one day at a time, persistent, consistent struggle and whining and complaining and defeat and you can't ever do anything because everything's against you and blah, 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 blah. You have become spacey. You have failed to recognize what Christ has done for you. And I plead, let the resurrection of power, resurrection power of Christ, turn your whining to praising, turn your complaining to rejoicing, turn your defeat to victory and your inactivity to action. Some of us think that we're going to be sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ by sitting on Facebook. We don't read our Bibles. We don't pray. We don't take full advantage of a right that's been given to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that would be to, that would be to exhaust and engage the means of grace that God has given. Prayer, scripture, the Lord's Supper, the fellowship of the church. You actually, if you're a believer, you actually have a responsibility over your own sanctification to engage in the means by which God has provided for you. Nothing will happen if you sit and do nothing. To sit and do nothing and to expect or to whine or anything is an affront to the resurrection power of God, period. Do you understand what's been provided for you? Power to raise one to new life. That new life, being raised with Christ, that's the new life that you have and live in by that power that does not leave you. It's there. And don't be like the Emmaus disciples. <laughs> I have no idea this is the Lord. <laughs> Later on in the story, when they found out, they were like, Day? I knew there was something burning here. And it wasn't the burrito. Number three, the skeptical response. Jesus' disciples. Huh? Yeah. Luke 24, 36 to 43. Luke 24, 36 to 43. 2, 4, 36 to 43 of Luke. As they were talking about these things, the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, this is right after he was resurrected, he came to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. If we were to pick any group of, of, of people out of the face of the earth, out of all the people in the whole world, and, and if we were to take any group that you would think that would be able to identify the resurrected Christ without any doubts whatsoever, you would think it would be these guys. These were his men, the chosen apostles. 
and they're sitting there looking at, look, it's Casper. These were his own disciples. These were the Messiah's own disciples. Nobody knew Jesus as well as they did, especially Peter, James, and John, who spent more time with them than the others. Surely they would receive Jesus without any hesitation. Surely they would be without any skepticism, but that's not what this passage says. On the contrary, when Jesus appeared to his own disciples, they became filled with skepticism and doubt. Why? Some say that it's because they couldn't identify Jesus physically right off the bat because he looked differently, that Jesus masked his normal appearance or something like that. Neither, you know, that's not what this text talks about. This text doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't say that they couldn't figure out who he was, that they couldn't identify him physically. Twenty. 37 or 2437, I think of Luke actually says that the disciples thought Jesus was a spirit rather than flesh and blood is what their problem was. They were skeptical about him standing in front of them in physical flesh, not as Casper. They were skeptical about the authenticity of Jesus' physical body, physical flesh. They thought he was a spirit, not a physical person. And this is why Jesus said this to them, paraphrase, let's do what a spirit cannot do, sit and enjoy a fish dinner. Bust out the long johns. Do ghosts eat? Well, they do on Ghostbusters, but it falls right through them. Remember Slimer? What did he do? He said, look, you don't believe I'm here in the physical flesh. Let's sit down and eat. Maybe that'll convince you. Hook a brother up with some cod. Now, people are skeptical about the resurrected Christ in three different ways. First, they are skeptical that Jesus actually rose from the grave. That's the spurious attitude. They're just skeptical that he rose. How can that happen? How can someone come back to life and be brought back to life and have a glorified body and pass through walls and join someone on the Emmaus Road and then go over here the next minute and do these things? How could, how could this happen? You know, we're just skeptical that Jesus actually rose from the grave. Let's just be honest about that. A lot of people struggle with that sort of skepticism. And then there's others that are skeptical that Jesus, you know, rose from the grave. They don't have so much as a problem with that, but they have a real hard time with knowing that he was resurrected as a real, literal person. A physical person. And then people are also skeptical about their own future resurrection body. Don't have a lot of understanding on that. Now the passages that I read address, the passage that I read addresses the first two types of skepticism. Jesus did rise from the grave and he did have a physical flesh and blood body. He ate food. In fact, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, when you pass away into eternity, you will meet the resurrected flesh and blood Jesus Christ. He is a real person who is now alive and completely coherent and completely engaging. He's not an invisible force. He's a physical person. And he will return as a physical person and make all his enemies his footstool. He will subdue the earth by the might of his own physical hands. When a Christian 
passes away, he or she will see and experience Jesus just as the disciples saw and experienced him after his resurrection and ascension because they've already died and been there with him. You will see Jesus as the Son of Man. That means in a physical way. And you will see him as the Son of God in a glorious way. You will see the holes in his hands, the holes in his feet, as Thomas did in the upper room. And you will see his glory as Peter, James, and John did on the Mount of Transfiguration. At the marriage supper, you and I will dine at a real physical dining table and we will eat real physical food, the choicest foods, the best that God has to offer. The kingdom that God is preparing is a real physical kingdom with a real physical king, King Jesus. The new heavens and the new earth will be real physical places. The broader promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that all things will be made new, made real, and made physical. Now the third type of skepticism is addressed in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49. This applies to Christians. Listen to verse 49. Just as we are now like earthly man, Adam, we will someday be like the heavenly man, Jesus Friends, those of us who are in Christ will receive a body like Christ. We will be given a resurrection body like his. It will be physical and spiritual. It will be perfectly holy and perfectly suited for worship, perfectly suited for service, perfectly suited for fellowship, without flaw. Our resurrection bodies will be incorruptible. They won't fall apart. They will last Forever and ever and ever. The Bible also says that the dead, unbelievers, rejectors, revisionists, will also receive a resurrection body. However, the resurrection body will not be fashioned for everlasting honor and happiness and elation, worship, but for everlasting terror and torment, Revelation chapter 20. Don't be a skeptic this morning. Don't respond to the resurrected Christ with skepticism. Believe the testimony of God's holy word and the testimony of history. Fourth, the surrendered response. The Apostle Paul Acts 26, 12 through 18. This is Paul's testimony before King Agrippa. 26, 12 to 18. Paul said, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, speaking of Jesus, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose 
to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In the early days of the church, there was a man named Saul who was a zealous religious leader who attacked and persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. While on his way to Damascus, Syria, Damascus and Syria, to round up believers, he was on his way on a mission to round up believers, to put them in jail, the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, appeared to him and spoke. Blinded by glorious light, Saul fell to his knees in submission and listened. Jesus made himself known to Saul in a physical way and in a spiritual way. Saul was immediately converted and became a Christian. Jesus gave Saul a mission which was to preach the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. Saul engaged his mission right after he gained his sight back. He actually went blind from the glory of Christ three days later. After that, man, the guy was set loose. He went on to preach the gospel and plant churches everywhere. He became known as the Apostle Paul. His name was changed. In Acts 26, Paul was brought before King Agrippa to give a defense against the allegations of the Jews. Paul told Agrippa about his experience with the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, which was why he submitted to Jesus, traveled everywhere, preached the gospel, planted churches, and got into hot water with the Jews. Prior to his life-changing encounter with Jesus, Paul was an enemy of Jesus and his church. But everything changed when he met the risen Lord face to face. Paul submitted himself and then began to live for Jesus. Have you, have you had an encounter with the risen Lord? Has Jesus come to you and breathed life into you? Have you received him by faith? Have you submitted yourself to him? Has your life changed? It is impossible to have an unchanged life and be in relationship with the risen Christ because whatever is true of Christ ultimately becomes true of his people because of our union with him. Are you surrendered to Christ? Have you given your life to the risen son of God? Are you like Saul who became Paul? You know, I have an old self. I used to be a type of Phil. One who despised God. One who only cared for himself. But that Phil has been put to death on the cross with Christ. That Phil was put to death. He died with Christ on the cross. The new Phil has actually been resurrected with Christ and now lives in submission to God by faith. I'm a different person. I'm not perfect. Nowhere near it. I wrestle with temptation and sin, but I love God and I love people. If you were to interview me, or if you were to interview not me, because you're interviewing me right now, if you were to interview any of my old high school buddies, even those guys that I knew up into the 20s, you were to ask them what I was like back in those days, they'd say, party all the time, party all the time. Party. I wrote Eddie Murphy's song lyrics. 
That's all I did was put stuff into my body so I didn't have to feel normal. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, new wave. It was the 80s. And I ran. That was me. That was the crowning achievement of my high school and early 20s. What an achievement. Drinking all the time, partying, carousing. It's all I knew. Some of those very same high school buddies, I interact with them once in a while, they cannot believe I'm a pastor. They're like, either God is really good or God is really dumb. Right? He called you to that? Did he know what he was getting himself into? Oh, yeah, he did. They cannot believe it. In fact, I was talking to one recently, and he said, hey, man, how are you doing? I hadn't talked to him in a long time. Hey, I didn't even remember him. And I was like, I'm doing great. Who the heck are you, you know? And he, said, and he says, what have you been up to, man? And I said, well, I'm a pastor now, you know, and I, we planted a church a couple years ago, and, and it's just awesome, man. We love Jesus. You know, he's like, hey, you want to go out Friday and get drunk? You know? No, I don't want to go out Friday and get drunk. There's, there's nothing in that for me. Those days are over, man. Some of them say to me, man, you really turned your life around and say, I didn't turn around Jack. I, 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 I didn't turn around anything. I didn't turn around my life. Jesus turned my life around. Now, I came to the lowest point of my life with a wife threatening divorce. And he saved me. And all I can say in response to that is all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But he washed me white as snow. Friend, stop fighting the resurrected Christ. You won't win. You can't win. Raise your white flag and surrender to him. Be like the Apostle Paul and countless others. Surrender. And be made new. Five. The sermonizing response. Mary Magdalene. We look over at Matthew 28. 1 through 10. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him... Uh, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. <laughs> but the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. 
And he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You know, the Lord had several female disciples. Mary Magdalene was one of them. Mary and a few other female disciples were the first to visit the tomb of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. They had come to prepare his body for burial because they didn't have time to do it Friday evening. It got dark and they couldn't do it on Saturday because that was the Sabbath. When they arrived at the tomb, there was, according to this text, an earthquake. And they saw an angel descend from heaven and roll the stone away and then sit on it. The Roman guards, as Annika had read earlier, they, that were placed in front of the tomb, they basically fainted. Ah! The women were fine, but the guys, ah! The women are like, I love this guy. This pastor preaches the truth. It's true. I didn't make up the scripture. There's guards, Roman battle-hardened guards. Ah! They went down. We got a piper down. They fainted. And the angel told Mary and her companions that Jesus had risen just as he said that he would and that he was headed for Galilee. He told them to go and tell the other disciples. He even rolled the stone away so they could look in and see for themselves. As they turned and turned and began to hightail it to where the disciples were, held up, Jesus appeared to them and said, Greetings. And they fell and worshipped him. I love that. And then Jesus reiterated the words of the angel, telling them to go and to tell the brothers, that's the disciples, and to say that he was alive and to go uh, head to Galilee where he would meet them. Mary and her companions did exactly as they were told. You see, sermonizing basically means to share the truth. If you preach the gospel, you are sermonizing. If you gossip, just share the gospel in casual conversation, you are sermonizing. If you explain a biblical principle or truth with someone, you are sermonizing. That's what it means to sermonize. And this is exactly what Mary did after encountering the resurrected Christ at the garden tomb. Her response was a sermonizing response. She went and told others about what she had seen. She gave them uh, the resurrected Christ's instructions. And note this, it was the resurrected Christ who, who gave her this charge and responsibility. He was the one that commanded the angel to speak with them firsthand, and then he came to them himself. The command came from him. And when we look at the end of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see a similar command which has been given to the whole church, to every believer. Example, Mark 16, 15, which says, go into all the world and proclaim, proclaim, 
sermonize the gospel to the whole creation. Mary was charged to announce the resurrection of the Christ to his disciples. We have been charged to announce his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, the gospel, to the world. Mary's response was a sermonizing response. And my prayer for us is that our response to the resurrected Christ today would be a sermonizing response. We need to go out and sermonize the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we're at, wherever we go. Mary was charged to do one thing to go tell the disciples we have been charged to go and to tell the world. And this would be for those who are surrendered. See, in surrender, we become missional and we become sermonizers and we talk and chat the gospel. Some of us preach it. The same command's been given to us. We're all to be sermonizers. Closing. Who do you most resonate with in this sermon? Who are you like? Who are you like today? Are you spurious? Are you a rejecter and a revisionist? The way that you revision it, just say it didn't happen. It couldn't have happened. That's how I rewrite the story. That's how I rewrite history, by straight denial Well, you can deny that Pluto doesn't exist, but it's out there. You get in something and fly out there, you'll find it eventually. You'll be 250 years old by the time you get there. But Are you spurious? Are you a rejecter? Do you not have faith? Do you disbelieve? Do you reject the life, the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that he lives today. But the very reason why I'm standing here and presenting this to you is because he lives in me. I haven't spoken to you today. He has. Why on earth would I want to say these things? Are you spacey? Is that who you resonate with? You just, in a sense, clueless about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ? Oh, you're a believer, but you don't act and live as one most of the time. Perpetually hindered by every little struggle and all these things. Not living in victory, whining, complaining, powerless life. Sin and Satan dominate you. Is that who you are? Are you a skeptic? you doubtful about the truth and how it applies to you? Are you doubtful about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are you doubtful about the fact that he is a true and living and physical being, person, that he is the son of man and that he is also the son of God, that he is both human and divine? If you reject him, I just want you to know, and I want to be very sensitive to you, I want you to understand that you are going to meet a real, physical Jesus, but he's not going to be your savior on that day. He's going to be your judge. 
and he will judge you according to your sins. Every thought, every wicked inclination, everything you've ever done will be held against you in his court. And you will pay the price for eternity for every sin. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10. Especially one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Don't be spurious, don't be spacey, don't be skeptic, don't doubt what Christ has done. Don't doubt it as a believer. Believe that he rose in power and that his power is what resurrected you and brought you out of darkness and put you in his light. And that power remains in you and on you and for you that you can live a victorious life. You are a conqueror in Christ. You resonate with the Apostle Paul? Have you surrendered? Have you given yourself to the Lord Jesus by faith? Have you received his precious gift of salvation? Turning from your sin and your self-reliance and placing your faith and trust entirely on him and on his merits and on his finished work, on his person and work. Is that who you are? Have you surrendered reach that point we could take it further by saying to the Christians in here have you surrendered every aspect of your life to him what part of your life is not surrendered to his will finances holy living what what is it we are called to surrender ourselves to him completely and maybe it takes a lifetime to learn how to do that don't give up Are you a sermonizer? Do you share the gospel with others? Do you? Are you like Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene had seven demons in her. Christ delivered her from the demons and from her sin. She received resurrection power by faith and began to live differently and began one who would go out and proclaim Christ. She became a sermonizer, in a sense. She delivered the Lord's instructions to others. You know what the Lord's instructions are? Repent and believe the gospel. For there is a day that has been fixed in judgment by the one whom I resurrected. Judgment's coming. The Lord will return. And he's not coming in gentleness. He's not coming in submission to other men, to Roman governments, to the Sanhedrin. He's returning as a glorious king to make war. To subdue this world and to establish his kingdom. Is that what you sermonize? Do you warn people about that? I certainly hope so. Who are you like and what is God calling you to do today? Is he calling you 
to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone? Is he calling you to believe in resurrection power? Is he saying to you, there is no reason for you, Phil, to be skeptical? I have done what I have done. My word makes it clear. Is he calling you to surrender in faith and obedience and repentance or to hand over some area of your life? Is he calling you to be a sermonizer? I think Matthew 28 makes it clear that every Christian is one of those. If you haven't been doing that, that'd be the thing that you need to do. What does he want to change about your life this morning? It's time for communion. Communion is for believers only. I'd like for you to ponder the things that you've heard. Ask the Lord, who am I like? And say, change me, God. I'd also like for you to confess any sin that you might have in your life. It is a really, really bad idea to approach that means of grace, the Lord's Supper, with sin in your life. You must confess your sin to him before you do those things, before you take those things. Confess any sin that you have. Maybe you've heard today from the Lord in this sermon and you find sin in your life there. Whatever it is, give the Lord a moment to search your heart. And then also, remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can't save yourself. You can't justify yourself. Christ justifies us by faith. It's actually in the resurrection that we're justified. The justification is made available to us by faith is what the scripture teaches. You can't save yourself. Come to terms with that. And as a saved and justified person, you should be a person of good works. Not to be justified, but in your sanctification. Remember that Christ finished our salvation, that it was wrought at the cross and brought forth through the resurrection. It's a finished, completed work. Hallelujah, I don't have to do anything but believe. I don't have to clean myself up. I can't. Simply receive what he's done and believe by faith. Be refreshed by God's grace in this time. We've had busy, chaotic weeks. We've sinned. Be refreshed. Confess. Remember the finished work of Christ and be refreshed by his grace. This thing that you're about to do is about his grace towards us. It is a gracious reminder of what Christ has done and our future supper where we will dine with a real physical king. And lastly, commit yourself to obeying all that Christ commanded. That is what a disciple does. When they find an area of weakness, they commit themselves to that. They confess and commit. And it's life is a battle. It's back and forth. Obedience here, you know, victory here, struggle here. But we keep moving forward. We keep pressing forward. We never say to ourselves, I don't want to obey the commands of Christ. That it is our pure joy to be given the power and ability and right to be able to even obey God and please him with our lives. Commit yourself to obeying him.